Okay, this morning is August 6, 2006. Our message this morning is take your seat. Take your seat. You ever been told to take your seat? There's two ways to receive that kind of word, isn't there? <laughs> Somebody looked at you and said, would you take your seat? That could be kind of a correction. You could think, oh my God, he's telling me to shut up and sit down. But in the right setting, being told to take your seat is an honor. If it happens to be the table with a king or the president of the United States or the leaders of the free world and somebody says, take your seat, what an honor that is, right? Amen. One of the things that I wanted to read to you this morning just as a place to start as we look at this message, take your seat, is an example about vows and what God requires of you for your vows. Now, I'm going to read to you about what's required of you in a vow. But the idea that I'm hoping that you'll get as we do this is God never requires as much of you as He Himself does. So if He requires something of you in a vow, that tells you something about His nature and who He is and what He does. If it's okay, I'm just going to read these to you. This is Numbers 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to Yahweh or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. If God requires you to honor your vow, do you think he honors his? Well, of course. Deuteronomy 23:21. If you make a vow to Yahweh, your Elohim, the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin if you do not repay it. If the Lord says that it's sin, you're missing the mark if you don't honor your vow to Him, do you think He's going to honor His vow to you? Of course. Of course. The law gives us insight into God's righteous character. These are words given to a nation that was their law for them. Again, my emphasis is not on what you must do here. This emphasis that, that I, I want you to get is, if this is what God requires of you, then certainly you can expect this character from Him. Ecclesiastes 5.4 says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it or filling it to the fullest. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. All of these words are given to men because we tend to be fickle. There are times where we... And a moment of passion will tell somebody, I'll do anything for you. And then in a moment of weakness, won't do a single thing for them. That's not how God is. Not at all. He tells man his righteous requirements so that man will learn about God. God fulfills his vow. He's not foolish. He's not undependable. And it just so happens that God, when He makes a vow, calls it a pledge in the Word or a covenant. Basically what a covenant is, is it's an agreement between two people. Except that God's covenants, even when He gives requirements for the second party, which were nations and people, He usually says, I'm going to fulfill it whether you keep it or not. In fact, sometimes He went into the covenant saying, you're going to break this horribly and I'm going to punish you, but then I'm going to fulfill it for you. Over and over and over showing us that He is a covenant-keeping God. That encourages me, because out of the ancient covenants, there are some that are important to us. 
again, I'm just going to hit these scriptures quickly because we're going to get into the meat of this word. But in Exodus 2.24, Israel finds himself in slavery and it says, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he delivered them. 400 years after the fact, God was still thinking about the promise he made to a man. And then he came through for a nation. In Leviticus 26, 42, he says in advance before it happens, I'm going to scatter you all over the place. There's going to be a diaspora. But then I will remember the ancient covenant I made with your father Abraham and I will fulfill my vow. In 2 Kings 13, 23, after the nation had really not done well, the, the writer of Kings says, and yet God was unwilling to destroy them or cause harm to them because of the pledge, vow, covenant that he had made with Abraham. Would you say the promises made to Abraham then are pretty important? Paul actually teaches in Romans 4 that the nation of Israel is blessed because of the promises made to Abraham and that that still stands today and that you are blessed because of the promises to Abraham and to the nation of Israel. That ancient covenant is important, isn't it? Well, that's good. Let's talk about another ancient covenant on a totally different level between two individuals. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. And I hope it will get clearer as to why I just went through that exercise as we go. In the ancient world, covenants were important. They were not taken lightly. 1 Samuel 20. Here in the Thompson chain, that's on page 322. Everybody knows who David and Jonathan were, right? You will soon if you didn't. Anybody know who Mephibosheth is? Hmm, that's... Could you spell it? <laughs> I couldn't either if it wasn't written here. David and Jonathan are said to be close friends in the Bible, right? Their love for each other was greater than the kind of love that a man had for a woman. Now, people have made funny things out of that verse. exactly what it means. It means it was not fleeting or based on the flesh. They loved each other sincerely from a pure heart. They risked their lives for each other time and time again. But there was a problem. Same problem that occurred in Romeo and Juliet. We have two warring houses here. What had been promised to David? He would be the king of all of Israel. Well, that's a problem if your daddy is the current king of Israel. Right? That could be seen as traitorous, disloyal, treacherous. That's a better word than traitorous, right? Treacherous. <laughs> and yet... Jonathan had the presence of mind to realize his family's glory was fading and David's was on the rise. And so he says this, in 1 Samuel 20, 15. Well, that's the middle of a sentence, so we'll start at 14. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. What does that show? That shows that Jonathan realized the word spoken to David was true, that it was going to happen, but he's asking for something. He's saying, I trust in what the Lord is doing in your life. I trust in the promises of God. And I'm asking for your mercy based on what God's going to do in your life. I'm asking for your help as my friend based on our relationship with each other, not based on a law not based on what is right, not based on anything other than He's appealing to David's mercy. After all, God said it. Whether Jonathan helps him or not, it's going to come to pass, right? 
What he's doing is he's saying, I recognize what God's doing in your life. I need mercy. Verse 16, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as much as he loved himself. Isn't that what Jesus told us to do? Love one another? Doesn't the New Testament tell us in several places that our love for each other should be greater than that of our love for ourselves? Isn't that what all of the law and the prophets hang on? Is loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself? This ancient covenant has special promise. I promise this is not in the Word for no reason. This is reaffirmed not just with Jonathan and David, though. I mean, Jonathan and David were friends. So you can kind of see how they struck this bargain, huh? But what about two mortal enemies? Who spent most of his life trying to kill David? King Shaul. King Saul. Turn to me to 1 Samuel 24, 20. Now, David's just had the opportunity to kill King Saul. If you're in warfare, but you happen to be in warfare with somebody who's supposed to be on your team, (laughs) what an interesting predicament, huh? Somebody symbolizes the head of your nation, but you're called to be next in line. He's trying to kill you, and now you have a chance to off him. But you're not sure God would be pleased with that. David takes the higher road. He decides not to kill his enemy. And watch what his enemy says to him. 1 Samuel 24, 20. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by Yahweh that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath. David was raised as a Jew. What did we learn about oaths? What did we learn about vows and pledges? He's got to keep this. I bet he didn't give his oath lightly. I mean, Saul's family, everybody but Jonathan, was trying to kill David all of the time. They saw it as their job, their loyalty to Israel. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to his stronghold. I want to talk to you for a minute about the rise of David. The rise of David in Israel is just like the rise of Jesus. Like Jesus, he was said to be a king before it was fully realized in the natural realm. Right? Was Jesus not born a king? Didn't Magi come from the east and present him kingly gifts? Didn't an old woman and an old man at the temple prophesy about his kingship? Wasn't his birth foretold hundreds, even thousands of years in advance and that he would be a king? Matthew 27, verse 11, a very direct question is asked to Jesus. Pilate says, you the king of the Jews? You remember how Jesus answered? Yes, it is as you say. But was he received as a king? In fact, today, Jesus is said to be Lord of everything, but do you see it everywhere? No. Hebrews 2.8 says, everything's subject to him, yet at the present we don't see everything subject to him. Well, it was no different in David's life. David was anointed as king. Y'all remember that? Samuel came to his house in 1 Samuel 16, verses 1-13. through 13, Went through all of the brothers. Then he anoints David and says, You are the one. You're the one that's going to be king. But did he become king right away? No, there were years and years of struggle. Like Jesus, he was made king in a remnant of Israel at first, and then all of Israel. Did you realize that? 
2 Samuel 2, 7 says that David was anointed king over Judah and Hebron. That's the southern kingdom. He was promised the whole thing, but it started with a little piece. Right? He's anointed king. You know how old he was? Anybody got a wild guess? 30. 30. Jesus became king in a remnant of Israel. A remnant of Israel. This is the early church. This is all the messianic believers that came to Him and embraced Him for the first 15 years. But not all Israel received Him. Well, Jesus and David had something in common. Because in 2 Samuel 5, verses 1-4, through 4, what you find out is that just two or three years after He was anointed king in Judah, He becomes king over all Israel. Israel's united. There is a day coming when King Jesus, who has been received by a remnant, will be received by them all. Where do we know that from? Brad, where do we know that from? It's Romans 11. It's Romans 11. Just read the whole chapter. David and Jesus have an awful lot in common, don't they? Like Jesus, when His kingdom was united, He set about to putting all of His enemies under His feet. 2 Samuel 8, verses 1-6 through teach us that David went out and he subdued the Philistines and he laid down the Edomites and he laid down so-and-so and so-and-so and he put them to death. In fact, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. When Jesus unites His kingdom, when He has all Israel saved, all the Gentiles grafted in, and the one people of God is the ruling force on the planet, what does Corinthians 15 teach us as He does? He destroys all dominion, power, and authority that is beneath Him, and He submits everything to God, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus and David had a lot in common, didn't they? But it's in this last category that we find the most beautiful similarity between David and Jesus. First, I want to read to you 1 John 3.1. Start with Jesus and then we'll work back into David. 1 John is near the book of Revelation. So if you get to the end of your Bible on the right-hand side and you begin working to the left, you will find 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John 3. Both Jesus and David like to lavish things. I don't mean they like lavish things. They're not on MTV Cribs. Their cars are not full of bling. They like to lavish on people things. In 1 John 3, 1, listen to this verse. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are goes on to say what we will be has not yet been made known. He says, how great of a thing is it that Adam has become a son of God? That Patricia has become a son of God? Why is he marveling at that? He's marveling at that because we, whether in uh, the nation of Israel or outside the nation of Israel, we're not born like God. We didn't act like God. And yet, somehow or another, through the miracle of the Gospel, He lavished. What does it mean to lavish? (laughs) You know? You ever ask somebody for seconds? And because the amount of food was getting small, you know, they gave you three pieces of macaroni? Would you call that lavishing? What is to lavish? Lavish is just to be... Have your coffee cup so full that you have to drink out of the saucer, as Charlotte told me one time. That's being lavished upon. You asked for ten and you got ten thousand. 
That's how the New Testament describes God's love for us. That we were sinners, and yet He loved us. He lavished Himself upon us. And what did He call us? Sons of God, children of God. And says, and that is what you are. Saints, the world tells you all kinds of things about what you are. It might tell you that you're fat. You're stupid. You're whatever else that they can think of to call you. But what does the Bible say that you are? You've been lavished upon. You are the children of God. Well, I started off telling you about similarities between David and Jesus, so I guess I better get back to that. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 4. We're going to be in 2 Samuel for just a minute. Nothing else. You'll learn how to find the book of Samuel in this sermon. Lavished. Any of you girls ever grow up? I'm talking about from five, six, seven years old, thinking about your shining night coming, rescuing you from some horrible thing, and lavishing you with gifts and treating you like a princess. That's a good feeling, isn't it? Now, when I was a little boy, I obviously was not dreaming about those things. And yet we all like to be in a situation where somebody has given us unmerited favor. I mean, it's one thing if I do something for you and that earns your affection and I work at it and work at it and work at it and so you respond in kind. I mean, that's one thing. That's nice. That's how most of our relationships work. You only love me if I love you. (laughs) You only serve me if I serve you. That's how worldly relationships work. But the kind in the kingdom, the kind that God has set upon us, required you to do nothing and He loved you anyway. And not just a little bit. That's really kind of where we're going with this message about taking your seat. It's not just a little bit. Wait till you find out all of the things that the Bible says that He's done for you. But first, in 2 Samuel 4. Remember I asked you who Mephibosheth was? Would it have helped you if I asked you who Ishbosheth was? Probably not, huh? <laughs> 1 Samuel 4.1 When Ishbosheth Son of Saul heard that Abner had died in Hebron. He lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named, not Banana, it's Baniah. <laughs> and uh, the other, Rechab. They were sons of Ramon, the Be- Berethite. Oh my goodness. It's a Budweiser fan. From the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Beeroth fled to Gitiam, and they live there as aliens to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. Okay, Jonathan had a son. He was lame in both feet. David made a promise to Jonathan. What was the promise? He said, look, when I come into the kingdom, I won't cut off all of your descendants. I will show you kindness. David then turned around and made that promise to somebody else, Saul. He said, look, when you come into your kingdom, please don't cut off all of my descendants. Does this man fit that bill? He's a son of Jonathan, who the promise was made to. He's a son of Saul, who the promise was made to. But let me ask you something. If all of Saul's house, Ishbosheth included, had been trying to kill David, what would be the natural thing to do? You'd put him to death right away. And how much more because he's lame? I mean, think about it. In the ancient world, 
Did they place a lot of worth on those who were lame? Where do you think we get the word invalid from? Invalid. Where do you think that comes from? That because crippled people through history have been esteemed? Probably not. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. When he was five years old, when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from... I'm sorry. When he was five years old, when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, his nurse picked him up and fled. What happened in Jezreel with Jonathan and Saul? They were both killed in battle. So his nurse picks up Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, and she begins to flee. And in her hurry to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. What on earth could that have to do with you? What on earth could that have to do with anything? Let's turn to 2 Samuel 9. Tell me when you're there. 2 Samuel 9, 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the household of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Why does he want to show kindness to someone? Because he made an oath. He made a covenant. A covenant based on a relationship, a friendship. Romans 4 teaches that there was a covenant made with a man named Abraham. One based on a relationship. One based on a friendship. And it's by that covenant that you Gentiles can be included as children of God. Now there was a servant in Saul's household named Ziba. They came to appear before David and the king and said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. How interesting is this? And Eric, why? I mean, my God, you're already putting me to sleep. We have a child who was crippled. At what age? Five. Those of you that have raised kids, five years old is a really neat age. When they're two, you're getting the impression that they know what no means because they repeat it constantly. By the time they're three... You start to see some defiance. But it's still childlike defiance, you know? By the time there are four or five, the most curious thing happens. They quit running around the house naked and proud of that and start covering up and being ashamed of themselves. Around five years old, for some reason, a child begins to understand that there's more in the world. They become socially conscious. Isn't that what you told me the other day, Cass? Children around four or five start to learn their social environment. They become conscious of who they are. This young man, from the moment in life that he began conscious of what's going on outside of his house, realized that he was crippled. Was it his fault? No. Somebody else dropped him. He was dropped when he was very young. But he was crippled. He couldn't walk right. And my God, where did he live? Does anybody know anything about Lodabar? Lodabar means no lands, no fruitfulness, dry, barren. Come on now. At some point, you have to realize we're not talking about Mephibosheth. Do you not know what it's like to not be able to walk quite right with God? To have lived in a land that was unfruitful in every way? Do you not know what it's like to have been dropped from birth so that always inside of you, you have what the Jews call an evil inclination? Even when you wanted to do something right, you were not always capable 
of doing it right? Come on, saints. Does that not describe your life at some point? When I read about Mephibosheth, what I see is Eric. When I look into the mirror of God's Word, reading about Mephibosheth, what I see is my crippled walk at times. What I see is that even from my youth, my heart was not set on the things that the kingdom was set on. What I see is that I came out of a dry and barren, pastureless, no fruit-yielding place. I wasn't looking for King David, but he was looking for me. Come on now. Is that not special? This young man has every reason to be horrified of David. He has every reason to be scared. In fact, his father, Ishbosheth, is going to be killed by those two men we read about in the previous chapter. He's got every reason to run and hide from David. Why would he find favor with David? He's a cripple. Why would he find favor with David? He's from the wrong side of the tracks. His family's always been an enemy of those called to lead Israel. He wasn't looking for David. If he was thinking anything, he was thinking how to get away from David. By the way, do you remember what happened to the man who came and said, David, Saul and Jonathan are dead. Thinking he was bringing good news. You remember what David did? He killed that man. When these two men put to death Ishbosheth, and they came and told David, Hey, we, we cut off Ishbosheth's head. <laughs> here, here it is. You know what David did? He said, Hey, when I heard that Saul and Jonathan were killed, and the idiot that brought me that news thought it was good news, I put him to death. What do you think I'm going to do to you? See, this fear that you're born with of the king, because you don't walk right, because you are from the dry Lodabar place, ignores the character of the king. The character of the king is that there was an ancient promise made. There was a promise made long before you were born and that you weren't a party to so that you can't take any credit for it. There was a promise made that was not based upon your ability to get this right. There was a promise made that was based on a man's friendship with God. Come on, saints, are you seeing that? The air conditioner keeps turning my page. So King David, verse 5, had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. He said, take that man out of the dry, barren, pastureless, fruitless place. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, why does it keep giving his genealogy? Do you not know who he is? I mean, what if I wrote you a letter and said, I am the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And I kept repeating that every page of the letter. You'd either think I'd lost my mind or I was trying to emphasize something, wouldn't you? Why is it that every time Mephibosheth is mentioned, they tell you who his granddaddy was and who his daddy was? They're trying to show you it is only on the basis of a covenant that happened long before he was even born that this is happening. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Mekur, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. Don't be afraid, David said. Why do you think he told him that? You think this crippled young boy came and bowed down before David? He was in love with David? How did you come to know the Lord? Tell me the truth. 
The very first time you began to feel a drawing with the Lord, was it a warm, fuzzy feeling? That's not the way it starts and you know it. You know what it was like if that's what you remember. It starts in every case with a fear of going to hell, a fear of dying in sin. And then comes the love and the affection. This crippled boy who couldn't walk right with God from the fruitless place has just been called with an audience before the king. All of you have experienced this very thing. And your very first thought is, my God, He's going to burn me because I'm just not right with Him. And what is the first word out of the king's mouth to him? Don't be afraid. God wants you to be intimate with Him. He's called you to a higher plane. Not because of anything that you've done. In fact, you're like a crippled in the kingdom half the time. Not walking right. You're used to bearing no fruit for Him. But He's calling you to a higher plane. He's going to lavish something upon you. And the first thing that He's asking for is put aside your fear. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of of your father, Jonathan. So was it something that Mephibosheth did that earned him the favor of the king? This is the Baptist message you've heard all of your life. You can't do anything to get saved. It's an unmerited act of favor. It's God's grace, right? Isn't that right? He didn't do anything to get the favor of the king. Who did? An ancestor. Abraham was a friend of God. And God promised He would raise up one nation from the man Abraham and through that nation bless all the peoples of the earth. You didn't do anything to earn that. You're just a recipient of the blessing. But let's talk about what a blessing it is. Let's talk about just what an awesome thing that you've been grafted into. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all of the land that belongs your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. It is one thing to be kind to a cripple. It's another thing to be kind to the son of an enemy. But my goodness, are we really going to say that he restored to him everything that belonged to Saul's family? What was that? That was the better part of the kingdom of Israel. And then he's going to do what? Seat him at his table. Y'all, to be seated at the king's table in the ancient world meant that you were an equal to the king. It meant that you were in the family, king's blood, or so close that you were considered to be family. The servants in the room stood. The wine bearer that stood beside the king, he didn't sit. He stood. This man's taking his seat at the table because of an ancient covenant. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice? A beautiful man like me. Come on, saints, is that what it says? What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? When you are first born again, it starts because there is a fear that you haven't gotten it right. And then as you move past the you start to understand that God is lavishing Himself upon you. You start to have these feelings of unworthiness. You start to go, oh my God, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I'm just a dead dog. Why are you doing this for me? 
Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. After beginning your knowledge, real wisdom in the fear of the Lord and moving on to the unmerited favor of the Lord and then moving on to a place where you go, oh my God, I am unworthy of this. You move to a place of provision from God. Saints, that's where all of the church is. At least we're supposed to be. We've moved on from our feelings of unworthiness where we're calling ourselves a dead dog. Because at some point it would be an insult to King David for Mephibosheth to sit at the table and call himself a dead dog. After all, if I graft you into my family, call you my son, give you a signet ring and say, you are blood of my blood, and you continue to say, no, I'm not, I'm a worm, I'm a dog, I'm a sinner. That's insult to the promise that I've given you. That's why it makes me want to upchuck when our friends pray and cross their hands and say, oh Lord, please help a dear sinner like me. That is what you were, saints. But now, it's time to take our seat at the king's table. We are his sons. He is ordering provision to be brought into our lives. Well, where? I don't see it. You're receiving it now. His servants are working the fields for you. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now, there's this little note here that is kind of curious. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. <laughs> how many sons? Just making sure y'all are awake. And how many servants? That's 35 people to wait on Mephibosheth. Do you think God's provision in your life is adequate? Could 35 people adequately take care of one person? Oh, I would think so. My father's sitting on the first didn't have 35 people taking care of him when he was in Texas Orthopedic Hospital. We were lucky to find one nurse that spoke English. Mephibosheth had 35 people waiting on him and he was eating at the king's table as a son. Verse 11, Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands your servants to do. You bet he will. Why do you think Ziba will do whatever David tells him to do? Because he's the king. Same reason I will do whatever Jesus tells me to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's... What's that next line say? Like one of his sons. First John says, All the love that God lavished upon us, that we are called His children, and that is what we are. The writer understood. He could look at the Word and go, I didn't deserve it. I was born in Saul's household. I'm from a dry and pastureless place. But my God, look at the love that has been shed on me. He said, now look, what we are as sons of God, what we will be, is not important. Because what we are as sons of God. Friends, that's the place I want to start this message today. All of the rest was just an introduction. What we are is sons of God. Now why... Cassidy, would the Bible call you a son of God? I mean, Cassidy is a beautiful woman. Why would the Bible call her a son? Because sons receive the inheritance. That's why. Irrespective of whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, irrespective of whether or not you are male or free, female, irrespective of slave or free, you are all equals in the kingdom. 
having rights as a firstborn son, eating at the table of the king. When I think about Mephibosheth, I can't help but get a little happy. Because although I was crippled, I have touched a God's hand who is making me whole. Where I could not walk right, He is now making me walk right. That's why I named this ministry Life-Changing Ministries. He's changing my walk. Now this is a message that repeats over and over and over in the Bible. Is that not the story of Jacob? What did Jacob's name meant? It meant deceiver, supplanter, one who struggles and wrestles. What was his name changed to? Israel. But he was given a funny walk always, touched in his hip socket, so that he'd always remember where he came from. Figuratively, he came from Lodabar. He was just like Mephibosheth. It was by God's mercy and grace that he'd been chosen to be a son. He wasn't looking for God. God was looking for him. Boy, doesn't that make you feel special? If it doesn't, you're not thinking about it hard enough. Out of all the people on the planet, why are you sitting in a room hearing about Jesus? Out of all the people on the planet, I mean, have you never grieved and thought to yourself, what about the billions who are starving? What about all the war here? What about the Hindus who never hear about God? Have you never thought about that? Well, I get those questions from the skeptics all of the time. How could a loving God do this and this and this? Right? Hadn't you heard them before? Theologians twist and turn and don't know what to do with all of those questions. Let's start with the truth though. Out of all those people on the planet, He picked you. Now, as bad as that may be for somebody that doesn't feel picked yet, how special should that make you feel? If this man has ten sons and one of them gets a brand new car, how sorry do you feel for the other nine sons? Can't you just be happy for the one that got the car for a moment? You were picked. You were special. Now let's talk about the other group for just a minute and then we're going to move on. Do we not serve a God who promises everyone who seeks does what? Finds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Don't we serve a God who will send men across an ocean to get one man of a different color skin saved? Don't we serve a God who will bring dreams and visions to pagan rulers so that their lives will change? Quit worrying about the other nine sons and start thinking for a moment about what God has done in your life. All of the questions about what about a man who was born on a desert island? What about a man who never had the chance to hear? Have you ever met such a man? No, if you did, they had a chance to hear. So are we not just going through an intellectual exercise that is really a paradox wrapped in a riddle? It's an excuse to ignore what God has done for you. What He's done for you is an awesome thing. I grieve for the lost. I grieve for the lost, but I realize I serve a king who on the basis of an ancient covenant is seeking out the Mephibosheths of the world. He is looking for us and that's why we're here. I'm excited to be here. And I'm burdened at times to make sure that I'm like Zeba, doing what God says to serve the Mephibosheths of the world. But I'm not going to miss the blessing that He's already given me, worried about some intellectual exercise that really doesn't exist. God's able to get them all saved. Okay? Let's talk about what God's done for you. A crippled from the pastureless place, a self-proclaimed dead dog, now has the servants of the Most High King waiting on you hand and foot. Those are like angels. 
Those are like pastors. Those are apostles, prophets, teachers, and evangelists. Men who love not their lives so much as to shrink from death to make sure you were well fed. Now you're at the king's table as a son. So when you look in the mirror each morning, what should you see? When you glance into the mirror each morning, do you see a dead dog? Do you see a cripple? Have you watched so many slim fast commercials and so many ab flexors and so many whatever fitness commercials that what you see is something that is unappealing to you? Have you basked in the glory of the soap operas to the extent that there's a fantasy world out there that condemns your life? What is it that you see when you look in the mirror? Craig spoke a good word into my life here the other day. He said, there are times we have to ignore the facts and embrace the truth. You got me? There are times you have to ignore the facts that are before your face and embrace the truth that is God's Word. When you look into the mirror, I want you to see something first and foremost. In Ephesians 2.6, I'm going to give you 12 things that you need to know about yourself. Yeah, if you got a pen, these would be worth writing down. But if you don't have a pen, because I am like Zeba in the house of the Lord, put here to serve you hand and foot, I made you references. I have a tight sheet for you so that we don't burden you by making you write here this morning. Where was Mephibosheth seated? Well, that's good for Mephibosheth, but what does that do for you? Well, Ephesians 2.6 says, And God raised us up with Christ. And God raised us up with Christ. And seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In the ancient world, why did you sit at a king's table? Because you were His equal. Because you were family. Because you were the same as them of royal blood. And if you weren't of royal blood, then the king must have adopted you, poor crippled from Lodabar, to put you at the table. Where are you seated? I want to tell you the truth. I read this in a book in 1993. A book that's out of print now, but I have in my library. I know Brad's got a copy. It's a good book. You should read it. It's called The Believer's Authority in Christ. Kenneth Hagin wrote it. I don't like everything that Kenneth Hagin wrote, but I like this. It's okay. He wouldn't like everything that I write. When I read his commentary on this verse, it said, You have been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Poor, ignorant, immature Eric that had not had yet a, had a grasp on the Scripture crossed it out, wrote a line through it in the book. I thought, surely he goes too far. He makes us equal with Jesus. Surely he goes too far. He gives us the same authority and power Jesus has. Surely he goes too far. And then I read in the Word and found out He doesn't go too far. That much has been lavished on us. You are seated. Not you will be seated. I want you to get the tense. It doesn't say one day when Lindsay struggles enough, when Lindsay fights enough, when Lindsay purifies herself enough through beating and fasting and sacraments and whatever other ridiculous thing, then she'll be seated with Christ. It doesn't say in the resurrection she'll be seated with Christ. It doesn't say when she memorizes the Gospel, she'll be seated with Christ. It says she is seated with Christ now. You may be sitting in this room, in fact. Adam is sitting on a third 
right now next to his wife. That is the fact. That's where he's sitting. But the truth of the Word says he's with Christ. Come on, will that not cure depression? Will that not make you think differently upon your life? So you screwed up last week. I did too. You are now seated with Christ. That means everything that He achieved, He's allowed you to benefit from. Everything that He's earned with God, you now sit in His stead with Him. How could you be beat down? Well, we get our eyes on the facts and off of the truth. The fact is, Eric still acts like a crippled an awful lot of the time. Although I've been called the living Zion, I sometimes still dwell in Lodabar. I need to remember where I've taken my seat and all things will fall into line. In fact, some things that are just flat out beneath us. Some things we ought not dignify with a response. When the devil says, Hey, Patricia, days of our lives, this guy is an awful good looking man. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a house like that? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a life like that? Patricia ought to be able to in her mind go, I can't dignify that with a response. I'm seated at the king's table. No, I don't run after the Ricky Martins of this world. I don't run after the fantasy lives of this world. I don't want to be on MTV Cribs because I'm seated with the king. Sometimes when the devil tells you what a dead dog you are and you've been inclined to agree with him, much like Pilgrim in the book last week, Say, yes, that is true, but the God that I serve is merciful. And when I look in the mirror, I see a man who is seated with the King of Kings. From here on out, I'm going to do my best, as Keith would say. I'm going to make it my custom that when somebody says something bad about themselves, I'm going to do everything that I can to remember to tell them, you are seated with Christ. You are seated, not, not you can be, not you should be, not you will be, you are seated with Christ. Paul goes so far as to say, hey, don't visit a whore. Well, that's harsh language, isn't it? It's Bible language. Don't visit a whore. Don't join Christ with that. That means when you're seated with Christ, He's seated with you. But that's where we go next. Romans eight fourteen says, you are all sons of God. When you look in the mirror, the very first thing that you should see is you should see somebody who is seated in the heavenly realms. When you look in the mirror the second time, what you should see is a son of God. You're not just seated with Him as a servant. He's called you His friend. He's not just called you His friend. He has said you are His brother. That is no small thing, saints. It is no small thing to be a brother to the Messiah. Romans 8.14 says, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, I already read you 1 John 3.1. I mean, there's a million Scriptures that say this. How can we ignore it? How could we live as if it's not true when the Word so loudly proclaims it? The third thing you should see when you look into the mirror. You are a co-heir with Christ. Have you never read that Jesus will inherit all things? Have you never read that Abraham will inherit the world? That's Romans 4. How is it that Jesus gets everything, but Abraham gets the whole world? How is that possible? Because the King that we serve sought us out. He brought us to His table, seated us with Him. 
wasn't just enough that He seated us with Him. He called us a son of the King. That wasn't enough. He made us an equal heir with Himself. A co-heir. Ephesians 3.6 says, This mystery is that through the Gospel, the Gentiles, that's you, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Whatever the king of Israel gets and gets for his nation, he shares with you. It'd be one thing for me to adopt the child. It'd be another for me to treat him just like my firstborn. It'd be yet a third thing to make sure that everything that my firstborn son received, the adopted child who doesn't look like me, who didn't act like me, who didn't come from my own family line, received everything that the firstborn son received. But that's exactly what's been done for you. The fourth thing you should see when you look in the mirror. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You call yourself a dead dog. We sing songs that say amazing grace that saved a wretch, a worm like me. And yet that's not what the Bible says about you. Not at all. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21... God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What have you become? The righteousness of God. You can say that with me. It's hard to get out of your mouth. We have become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That means every bit as much as Jesus is in right standing with God by your trust in what Jesus has done, you are now in right standing with God. David, have you ever fouled it up really bad? David and I are brothers in lots of ways. In our actions, by marriage, and in the kingdom. I have fouled it up. In every way that David's ever fouled it up, I'm sure I have fouled it up. And yet the Word says about him and me both, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus doesn't say we can be, doesn't say we should be, doesn't say we might be if we strive hard enough. It says that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I want to recap these for you. When you look into the mirror, you see somebody seated in the heavenly realms. You see somebody who is a son of God. Somebody who is a co-heir with Christ in Israel. Somebody who is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Well, if that weren't enough, and I'm sure that would be enough. All of this builds for a reason. It's listed 12 here that the Bible lists because 12 seem to be a good number. But each one builds on the other. Number 5 comes from Galatians 3, verse 26 through 27. It says, You are all sons of God through trust in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with the Christ. The reason that you're a son, the reason that you're seated in the heavenly realms, the reason that you're a co-heir and that you're righteous is because when God looks at you, He sees His anointed one. He sees that you are totally wrapped in Jesus. Now, this ought to do all kinds of things for us. Number one, it ought to make you feel really good about your high calling in Jesus. That Jennifer Hull is wrapped in Jesus. That the fact is, she looks like Jennifer Hull. But the truth is, to God, she looks just like Christ, Jesus. 
It ought to make you feel good about yourself. The other thing that it ought to do is make you realize certain things are simply unbecoming for us. If to the spiritual world we look like Christ Jesus, how can we participate in certain things? That's why I keep telling you in your freedoms, don't sin. You're free to watch TV. You can watch anything on TV that you want, but you're not free to sin. Free to listen to the radio. Anything on the radio that you want to listen to, but you're not free to sin. You're clothed in Christ. Free to eat any kind of food that you want to eat. The Bible's very clear about that. But you're not free to sin. There are some things that are simply unbecoming for Christians. I don't need to list them in a rule book. I don't need to put up here on the wall a list of do's and don'ts. You are clothed with Christ. There are certain things that the king's children just won't stoop to do. Remember who you are. Take encouragement in what God is doing in you, what He has done for you. You ready for number six? We're halfway done. And we're 53 minutes into the message. I don't think I have ever finished a message where we had two pages of typed scriptures in under 60 minutes, but today I'm going to try. That'd just be an icing on the cake for you, huh? Number six, Colossians 2.9. You have been given fullness in Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity in bodily form lives. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Have you ever thought, my life is incomplete. My job is less than fulfilling. My marriage is less than fulfilling. My sex life is less than fulfilling. My emotional needs are not met. It's less than fulfilling. Has the devil never lied to you about any of these things? I'm not asking you to sign a petition. The Bible says that you have been given fullness in Christ. Everything that God has, Jesus has. And everything that God has given to Jesus that they've joined together in, you now join with Jesus, have. The whole world is yours. There's nothing in it that you should covet. There's nothing in it that you should need. There's nothing in it that you should crave because it's all yours anyway. Every bit of it. Fullness in Christ. See, if I seated Mephibosheth at the table and I called him a son and I provided for him, I would still let everybody know he's not really my son. I just kind of treat him like my son. Aren't I a good guy? Wouldn't you do that? You know, I mean, this is my son Judah. Boy, isn't he great. This is my other son by different marriage. I don't really have that situation and you all know that, but have you never heard that said? Yeah, I've heard it said. This is my son and this is my stepson. Isn't that the Cinderella story? Not sons, but come on. Y'all have never heard that? When God sat at the table, it did not matter to Him that you were not blood of His blood. He gave you fullness. Everything that He has, you have. Nothing withheld. That's awesome. Saints, that's so good that I don't know how we could sit in our seats and just hear it. That's something to meditate on. The reason that I give you these in writing because I want you to tape them to something in your house. Something that you see every day. So whether that's the coffee pot, the refrigerator, or the wall in the bathroom, these are things that we're going to get in us because they define who you are. They change your life. If you've ever looked at me and said, Eric, you know, 
Maybe that boldness is just who you are, but that's not who I am. Maybe you've looked at me and thought I was arrogant at times. It was probably true. But if there were ever a godly arrogance, it comes from knowing who you are in Christ Jesus and realizing that you're special in all of the creation and nothing can take that away from you. I can go work at Waffle House and be the most persecuted guy in the bunch and take pride in my high calling. And God meant for us to do that. That's why Paul told us to take pride in our high calling. And at the same time said, you weren't of noble birth. He wants us to know we were from Lodabar. Number seven. This might be the very best. Number seven is that you are a participator in the divine nature of God. Now that, that's another one that you could just cross right out, couldn't you? Is it too much to think that you're seated with Christ? Man, that's such a heavy thought for me. It's convicting, it's encouraging. I just almost can't believe it, but the Word says it's true, so I'm going to act like it. Well, if that went too far, how far does this go? How far does this go? You participate in the divine nature, the substance of God. He didn't just put you at His table. He didn't just cure your feet. He didn't just provide for you. He put some of Himself in you. 2 Peter 1.4 says, Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. What does a participant mean? It means that you experience it. Some people would say that there was an angel who wanted to be like God and that that caused his demise. Whether that's how that happened or not is irrelevant. I want you to understand something that God has done for you. He's made you participate in who He is as God. He's given you a little piece of it. Hebrews calls it tasting of the heavenly age, of the kingdom that is to come. He's given you fullness in that. In other words, as much of Him as you can absorb, as much of His character, as much of His power and His attributes as you can soak up, He's given you. It's already there. All you've got to do is learn to walk in it, move in it, and receive in it. That's why we call this life-changing ministries. If you're not like God in some area, you get the opportunity to be like Him in that area tomorrow. Love justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly. All of those things that He does. Chapter number 8. Come on, young, hang in there with me for two and a half more minutes, can't you? Is this just not very good? Because if this is not good, despite the messenger, then you're in the wrong religion, friends, because this is as good as it gets. Go be a Hindu. Worship the rats. Go be a Muslim. Blow yourself up for Allah. You really want to show God how good you are? Go serve Him in one of the eastern countries where they crush their body parts to show Him how pleased with Him they are. Are those the kind of promises you were grafted into? No, it's not. All these promises are the very best there is. This is really, despite what Miller says, this is as good as it gets. This is the high life. Right here. We just have to learn to act like it's true and ignore the facts that are around us. Number eight is you are the dwelling place of God. In the Old Testament it was said, I don't dwell in buildings made by men's hands or in houses of stone and wood. 
You know where God's chosen to dwell? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you, yourselves... Don't you love sentences like that? You know, I, myself... Well, what other I is there? You know? Don't you know that you, yourselves... Why would he say it like that? That's not even good English. Of course, it wasn't written in English. Why would he say it that way? He's emphasizing it. He's saying, you, Charlotte, I'm talking about you, baby, are the dwelling place of God. You are His temple. You want to know where God is? How can I stretch up and reach God? How can I descend into the depths to reach God? How can I reach Him? All you have to do is find one of His people and you have found Him because they're His Son, His representative, full in Him, clothed in Him, acting like Him, living like Him, participating in His very nature. In fact, a priest represents God to man. So number nine, I'm sorry, number nine is before the priest. It's Colossians 1:10 through 12. We're strengthened with all power. Saints, I know you've heard this before. You have heard a Christian say, I just can't. I couldn't help it. I tried, I just couldn't. I tried not to look at that. I just couldn't help myself. Well, you may not have been able to help yourself, but here's what God says about you. Colossians 1.10 And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power. What is Patricia strengthened with? All power. What is Brad Hall strengthened with? All power. What can you not do? What have you not been given? What is it that you lack? God says that you have been strengthened with all power. So what's too much for us? Will sickness separate us from God? Will death separate us from God? Will mountains, valleys, tortures, beatings separate us from God? All power is what you're strengthened with. According to His glorious might, so that you might have great endurance. Why did you get all power? so that you would endure beyond all ability to endure. And patience. Oh dear God, that's where Eric falls short. But you know what? When I fall short, all I have to do is remind myself I have more than enough spiritual gas in the tank to make it through this journey. Because God's given me all I need. And joyfully, uh (laughs) uh-oh, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, qualified you, you ever been told for a job you just weren't qualified? God's made you competent, He said. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. That means everything that your brothers and sisters get, you get. He's qualified you for that. You want to know what number 10 is? You're a holy and royal priest. That's because 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen people. Now that's Israel, friends, the chosen people. How did you get qualified to be addressed by Peter in this way? He's grafted you into every promise that they have. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Have you ever thought that you were worthless? Then why did God purchase you? Craig's got a BMW. likes it. I like it. Why do people pay so much? Not Craig, 
But why do people pay so much money for a BMW? Why is it worth that to them? Because it's a nice car. So if the most precious substance on the planet, Jesus' blood, was spilled for you to purchase you, what does that mean He thinks of you? See, in the kingdom, there's no room for thoughts that don't compare with these. We're supposed to take them captive and pull them down. That's why I'm giving you these. 11. Why have you been given all of these powers? Why have you been given this equalness as a son? Why have you been clothed with Christ? Why have you... Why, why, why? Why do all of this? Because in God's heart, like King David who had a heart like God, he's looking for something. He's looking for the people who are stuck in Lodabar because they were dropped when they were little. He's looking for the people who are crippled. He's looking for people just like us. And now that He's found you and sat you at the table, the eleventh thing that you should see when you look in the mirror is you're an ambassador of God. He found you for one purpose, so that you would get about His kingdom's business going out finding the others who are lost. Next time somebody asks you, what about those who are in India and have never heard about Yeshua the Hamashiach? Next time somebody says, what about so-and-so born on a desert island? Look at him, smile and say, what have you done to find those people and tell them about the great and glorious God? And if the answer is nothing, stop the conversation. It's not worth going into. We are called to be ambassadors of God. All of this equipping was for one reason, so that you could accurately present God to other people in His stead for Him. In fact, here's how the Scripture says it. It's 2 Corinthians 5.19 We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. Have you ever been tempted to think, what has God ever done for me? Well, this morning He just told you 11 things that are glorious, wonderful, awesome principles about you through me, His ambassador. And why would He give you that equipment? Why did He send Ziba out in the fields to work the fields for you today? So that you could go tell other people. I'll tell you something about Americans. They don't care what you have to say. They want to see how you live it. So as much as I'm telling you to go be an ambassador, I want you to be an ambassador in your deeds. Then let your words follow. There's a reason that I'll go spend time sheetrocking the ceiling. It's not just because I love to work above my head. It's because I love the people of God and I believe that your actions speak louder than your words. I want to be an ambassador. You know why I do something like that? Because I think if Jesus were here and He is through me, through you, He would do it. That's why I do that. You know why we'll go spend time in a group doing things in group activities trying to make sure no person's left out, no person is excluded? Because God's always looking for the one that is excluded to bring them in the circle. The twelfth thing that you should realize when you look in the mirror and where we close our message. Oh wow, I got carried away again. Is Ephesians 1.18. You need to circle a word in Ephesians 1.18 and I'm going to tell you what it is. It says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that the eyes of your heart be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you. You ever heard somebody say they were saved but they had no idea what they were saved from or into? 
Be honest. Did you know these preceding 11 things about you? Had you been concentrating on them? Is that what you saw when you looked in the mirror? Paul's writing to the Ephesians hoping that their hearts will be enlightened so that they'll know these things. And to top them all off, the biggest one, number 12, to which He has called you the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Whose inheritance? Who is His? God. Circle His in your Bibles. You are God's inheritance. Nobody in my family is rich that I know of. But were they rich, you might wait your whole life to inherit something from them, right? Is that an unheard of thing? No, it's not an unheard of thing. God is waiting to inherit something. That is an unheard of thing. God wants to inherit something from you. He's waiting for His saints to be all that they've called to be. And that's like an inheritance to Him. He's waiting for you to see yourselves like His Word says you are. He's waiting for you to act in a way that shows you understand what He's done for you. That is like receiving an inheritance. You are the inheritance of God. A people He's purchased for Himself. A people He's remodeled for Himself. A people that love Him of their own free will without force or compulsion and have given their lives to Him. That's His inheritance out of all the creation. None of the beautiful creatures in Africa, none of the glorious stellar realm, none of the other creation compares with you who God has chosen as His inheritance. And not everybody lives up to it and not everybody does it because they miss out on all of those things we just said. We're going to close right now. And I typed for you and highlighted for you and listed Scripture references for you to put on your mirrors, on your refrigerators, in your car, wherever you will see them. When I do marriage counseling, I always give each spouse Scripture to read to their other spouse. I ask them to do it every day because those Scriptures will change the way that you look at your spouse. They'll change the way your spouse feels about you and themselves. Well, you guys are married to God And your marriage counseling is to first understand how God sees you. And so I'm giving you scriptures to read to yourself from God. They're His love notes to you. So that all week long you will feel special. All week long you'll understand what you've been called to. Stand up and let's pray.